Hey all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host Bushido Squirrel, and today we've got a really interesting conversation with Laura Hanna from the Debt Collective going down. But before we do that, I want to talk to you for a second about Knock LA. Now, Knock LA is our hyperlocal news source that we've been running out of Ground Game for the last eh, a little bit less than a year or so. At this point, it's all pro bono and it's all sweat equity. Now, we finally launched a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com backslash knock underscore LA. And you can always visit knock-la.com to read what we've been writing. We would like to get to a point where we're running sort of a worker-owned cooperative media company. We, A lot of us work in the media industry. I, for one, am a video editor. I've worked for some of the largest new media companies out there. We know how toxic the media environment is. The problems that we see with news and with journalism and the delivery of information do not come out of nowhere. They're driven by the profit motive and the private ownership of these corporations. Their desire to eke a profit out of even the slimmest margins at the cost of the workers and the consumers. We want to push back against that. The amount of talent that we have that wants to work with us, that works in collaboration with us, that we just know in our daily lives, who are underpaid, who are overworked, who are underappreciated, is absolutely mind-boggling. Every single person I know who works in this industry has a story about being screwed over by large companies, by more powerful employees, by organizational structures that are not meant to do what their mission is. That would be to deliver valid, worthwhile, useful information to the public. At Ground Game, we believe in seizing the means of production as efficiently and effectively as we can. We know that we can build something better than what is out there, but we also can't do that without capital. It's one of those really annoying things that comes along with living in, you know, a capitalist society. Like, there is no opt-out button for us to, like, have a communist media empire. But we can build that. We can build a worker-owned media company. We can build a non-hierarchical structure that allows us to create media, to disseminate information, to have an ongoing conversation with the people who are involved with us and the people that we're trying to reach. So I want to ask you for a couple of things, if you're able to. If you can, throw us a tiny donation on the Knock Patreon, you know, a dollar a month. Five dollars a month if you want to get our editors sending you a, a, a newsletter every week about what we've been reading, what we're interested in, things that you should be thinking about that are maybe outside the scope of our coverage. If you can do more than that, that is fantastic. And hopefully we'll be able to come up with more premium content as we go along. But first we need to kind of, you know, start off at a crawl, get to a walk, and then get to running. We've never been ones to do things easy, so we kind of started off at a sprint. And we've been able to sustain that for a bit. But we're getting to the point where we need more help. And unfortunately, that is going to be financial help. But the other thing is, we're always looking for writers. And if you have something that you want published that's in line with our progressive muckraking ideals, please get in contact with us through knock-la.com, and we would love to publish what you've been writing, as long as it's about LA, because we want to stay hyper-local. And for anyone out there listening that isn't in LA, we would love to help you set up your own hyper-local news source. This isn't a model where we want to be become hegemonic across the country. We know that our focus is always going to be LA. This is our home, this is our neighborhood, this is our community. You have your own home, your own neighborhood, your own community with its own issues that need to be talked about and discussed. And hopefully by working collaboratively across state lines, across city lines, across even national lines, we can begin to develop a new model of media ownership, of media participation, and of media creation. And I really hope that you guys will join us. So again, please visit patreon.com backslash knock underscore LA, toss us a couple of bucks, and if you're interested in becoming a sustaining donor to Ground Game, we could really use that too. We are a 501c4. We do take sustaining donations through CrowdPack, so if you want to throw us some money there, either a one-time donation or a sustaining donation so that we can keep ramping up this work as we head into not just this midterm, but the elections in 2020, focusing on local and state races, that would be a really big help. We're trying to do a lot here. 
we have never been people to look at a challenge and think, no, I, I'm not going to climb that mountain. Uh, and that can occasionally see us outpacing ourselves. But what we found is that when we turn to the community, when we turn to the people who support what we're doing, who are interested in what we're doing, who do the kind of work that we do, we get the support. We get the camaraderie that we're looking for to keep climbing that mountain. And we're going to take it one step at a time, but we are going to get to that peak. We will be the people who see the promised land, just like you. Thank you guys very much for listening. Anyways, I'm going to get into it now with Laura Hanna. Uh, the Deck Collective is doing some really, really good work. And these are, again, the type of people that we want to signal boost, that we want to see getting more publicity and more interest in because they're doing amazingly good work and they're incredibly talented, motivated, dedicated people that deserve not just our support, but your support as well. So thank you again. And now we're getting into the interview. Today, we're sitting down with Laura Hanna from the Deck Collective. How are you doing today, Laura? Great. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start off. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Deck Collective, where you guys came from, where you guys are trying to go? Sure, yeah. The Debt Collective um, came out of Occupy Wall Street. It's an organization that's dedicated to building collective power within the financial markets. What does that mean? So we often talk about lessons from labor organizing and describe our effort as a 21st century debtors union. While workers of the past might have shared the same employer and organized on their factory floor to win things like the eight-hour workday and other benefits, health care, etc., we don't share those conditions necessarily any longer. We don't share the same boss any, any longer, and we don't share the same factory floor. The nature of work has changed. Labor unions are in decline, although some are making a comeback. More people are un unemployed, underemployed, precariously employed, not making a living wage, changing careers eight or nine times in their lifetime. So again, while we don't share the same boss, we do share the same creditors. And we really need to get an understanding around that, that we have some potential leverage if we can collectivize what is typically individualized, which are consumer debts and individual debts. So this sounds like a very different way of looking at solidarity, because as you were saying, like that's a very old labor concept. It's one that we lose a lot with our at-will employment and right-to-work state laws and stuff like that. Um, how has that solidarity been fostered? Like, are you finding success with that gaining traction? Sure, yeah. Over the last couple of years, we ran a campaign to try these ideas out, right? Do, do people identify with another? Do they build solidarity together? Would they build solidarity? We ran a campaign that was called um, the Corinthian Collective, which was a school that it was actually a parent company, Corinthian, a for-profit education corporation that owned Everest, Wyotech, and Heald. And we worked with former students who were student debtors of that company to um, launch a student debt strike, the first student debt strike in history, alongside a legal strategy called Defense to Repayment, where thousands of people across the country um, filed disputes to stop paying their debts. Um, and from that effort, we eventually won over $600 million in debt relief. So we found that not only did we win debt relief, but that people did from across the country identify with one another's struggle. They came together. If we, you know, we facilitated, of course, through a platform, through a lot of organizing. Um, but but people did come together and identify and rally around a shared condition. Uh, and before we uh, kind of talk about what's going on now, I want to ask about the debt jubilees that you guys rolled out um, years ago. Um, I, I understand you're not really doing that now, but can you tell me about that concept? 
Yeah, so the Rolling Jubilee was our earliest initiative, and it was really, we saw it as a public education project and a chance to challenge what we call the fake morality around indebtedness, this kind of double standard that creditors say you always must pay. Meanwhile, wealthy people like scoundrels, as, as in Trump and others, are constantly getting out of their debt. And in fact, the campaign that I mentioned before, Corinthian, filed bankruptcy to you know escape any kinds of responsibility. So um, we launched this, this initiative, and it, what it was was um, a crowdsourced campaign where people contributed from across the country on average $20 a piece to liberate people from their debts. They didn't know the people that they were paying, their, the people's debts that they were paying, the people themselves. They didn't know. We started with medical debt, but um, raised around $700,000 and abolished $33 million of medical debt, payday loans, student debt, and private probation debt. So um, we launched that in 2012, started with a you know, big spectacle-based telethon with a bunch of musician friends, um, some of which are here and, and also recording this weekend. Um, they volunteered their time. And then, yeah, that went viral. And people just contributed across the country, again, to uh, relieve one another of each other's debts at random. And I, this points to something I find uh, very interesting is your debt generally isn't actually worth what your debt is. Like on the private market, when they sell it, it goes for a lot cheaper. And it seems like you guys were leveraging that to, to kind of get a bigger effect, a better return on investment, as they say. Right. Americans like a good deal, right? <laughs> so um, that's the case, not with all debt types. Different debt types have a longer shelf life, for example, where we know the state will prop up and continue to collect and enforce collections. Those debts are more valuable. Um, in the case of defaulted medical debt, defaulted you know payday loans, other consumer debts, credit, credit card debt, um, those debts do end up being pennies on the dollar, and there's a there's a great variation you know anywhere from under one penny to you know seven to ten cents on the dollar. Student debt obviously is something that you can't get rid of, and therefore it's it, that's not the case unless um, they're private loans coming from a you know scam school like mm -hmm. the one that we found. Okay. Um, and for right now, uh, you're not doing the Jubilee. Instead, you've built sort of a different platform. Do you want to tell us about what your current efforts are? Yeah. So our current efforts are working on a platform using technology and um, experience from our organizing the last couple of years. So for example, taking the best of Facebook and also building uh, a whole suite of dispute tools that that mirror the dispute tool that we used during our last campaign, which is called Defense to Repayment. And what these tools are, we consider them a direct service. They're very easy to file. They allow people to dispute general debts in collections, um, people who have their taxes taken or offset, wage garnishment, um, credit disputes, federal student loans, private student loans, defense to repayments I'd mentioned. So that suite of, uh, dis of dispute tools, they're there as a service, they're there as mutual aid, they're free. We have people that are um, helping file those on the back end. So when people who don't say have computers can fill these out on their phones, we receive them and then send them certified mail. Of course, people have the option to mail themselves. And it's basically a template where it's we've made it very easy to um, fill in a complaint, fill in information, and then we've turned it into legalese that can be submitted on the other end. 
And what um, I, I, I imagine there's not like an average debtor in America since everybody carries such a, a diverse range of debt. But what is kind of your, your average uh, person that, that uses the dispute tools look like and what are they looking for? I mean, it really depends, right? I, we have what we call the downwardly, um, downwardly mobile. I don't know the 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 middle class that's now falling apart. The precariat, the precarious worker. We have low income communities, black and brown communities. I'm I'm here in Los Angeles because I was just working on an event that was focused around incarceration and fees and fines, um, and we're we're finding a lot of overlap across the board. It's our position that especially as I said earlier today in the event that um, all our motto is dispute every debt and especially in black and brown communities we find all debts are illegitimate and we're here to facilitate abolishing those debts and fighting for you know universal access and um, public funding for public goods as a right so you know you can find people who are coming out of prison who have family members or neighbors or others who have supported them through maybe taking out loans or I don't know, payday loans or not paying other bills in order to prioritize certain bills. So you know, there's a lot of overlap between these different types of debts. And what, what we're trying to do is um, draw the connections between them and talk about austerity politics, um, a politics of violence and state violence and ways in which we should be investing rather than uh, you know, punitive governance. And and this seems like it's taking on a, a bit more uh, importance now, not here in like California, uh, but in in America, ostensibly debtors' prisons are supposed to be a thing of the past, but we know that they're that they're not. And can you talk a little bit about the connection between criminalization and uh, debtors? Sure. I mean, it seems to me that you're as free as you can pay to be at this point. And so as we see people who, you know, um, either lose their homes, right? There's a huge re- uh, correlation between homelessness and going to prison or jail just simply by being homeless. And that's, I've read cases about this in California. That's Oh yeah, no, L- LAPD uh, arrested, 30% of their arrests were houseless people, 14,000 arrests in total. And Chief Charlie Beck was telling everyone, well, that might be the thing that actually gets them to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, uh, which just doesn't happen. Right. It's absolutely dehumanizing in every way. So I, I would say that, you know, what's the connection? Well, it's it's a slippery slope. And as soon as you find yourself unable to make it, uh, if you're not making a living wage, you know, we often talk about wage stagnation since the 70s, at least. And then at the same time, a kind of um, different forms of enclosure where it's like, yes, you can access health care and education that's becoming increasingly privatized and, and more expensive if you can afford to. And otherwise, you're pretty much shit out of luck. So good luck for you. So, OK, if medical debt is um, attributed to 67% or connected to 67% of bankruptcies. You see that as a problem. Somebody gets sick. Okay, they they might not be able to work anymore. Now they're having to file bankruptcy. Perhaps they're now going to lose their home. So then they're maybe homeless or maybe they're living with other relatives. The bills are stacking up, you know, let alone communities that have just been marginalized and on the outside forever, you know, that aren't a part of that narrative of being now downwardly mobile or stripped of any kind of comfort or wealth that was built over the last couple of generations. And what kind of impacts are you seeing on people who are carrying like debt long term? I assume it's getting bigger. Bankruptcy might be part of it. But what other things are, are people experiencing that's making it harder for them to get out of debt? I just think it's the stress associated in the long term, you know, precarity or the inability to 
get a job or to stay in a place or to have any safe people aren't having families you know they're making decisions like they aren't staying in one place because they can't afford to they're not having families because they don't think that they can afford them they're not maybe studying they're just making decisions based on um, scraping by and I think it's 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 sad to see different kinds of priorities around just survival. But I think it's the fatigue over a long period of time of being broke, of constantly trying to make ends meet. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen, I have a friend who's a doctor who said that they've seen an uptick, especially since post-recession of increased anxiety, of stomach issues around stress, of just increased stress. And that's, I think, related to economic struggle. And I'd say that, you know, again, black and brown communities have been, they're just on the at the lowest point of they're they're just struggling the most they have been for generations and generations there's so much trauma around not only being broke and struggling economically but also you know being policed and criminalized yeah the the disparity between uh generational wealth of white families and then families of color is is amazing i think the the uh number i heard was it would take a, a the average black family 240 years to earn the generational wealth of a white family um but to get to like sort of your tools what is a consumer uh what do they need to bring to the table to use your tools and what can they expect when they engage with them yeah, so we've made it very easy. All people need to do when they come to disputed debt is bring their notice and bring their information. And their information is just their name, their address, and then the name of the creditor, the name of the creditor's address, and you know a couple of other fields, and that's it. And then we start a dispute formally. And once you've signed up and you've done that, you're in our system. We do not sell your data. We do not share your data. That's very important. We have a concept called data dues where we think that people need to, you know, we contribute information voluntarily. We try to think about how we can use that strategically. We know that our data is being sold behind our back and used for predatory lending and all sorts of schemes, um, predictive policing, I don't know. But, you, you know, we're not, obviously, we're not in that line. Um, but we will follow those disputes with you, and then when you receive notification, we'll be in, you will have to be in touch with us, and then we'll go ahead and um, take the next step, depending on what you've received, and go from there. So it's really, again, a mutual aid tool and a service um, as we work toward organizing to win public provision of public goods. And how long does it take generally for the process to, to work its way through? For it somebody. really depends. It really depends. All creditors are different. Some creditors have lawyers that are, you know, working on those collections. Others don't. They're deterred and they don't want to deal with it and they haven't really spent that much money. So they, you know, respond like, okay, we're not going to deal with this. Um, it really just depends on the debt type and the creditor. And how easy is it to track uh, debt as it's sold through the system? Because I know that's that's also a major point of different debt collectors buying and selling debt to, to you know, in our over-financialized market. Um, you know, how much can you trust the notices that you're getting from, from collectors? Yeah, so debts are sold multiple times in the market. It's very shady, Wild West market. And so uh, it's, it's hard to track um, debts and what you need to do. And there's resources on our platform to know your rights, know your debt resources. But, you know, you should always, when a creditor contacts you, especially if it's a new creditor you've never heard of, challenge what's called the chain of title and that's you know part of the general debt dispute that we have there does that um, because often there's going to be multiple collectors attempting to collect one bill 
And what's it look like uh, sort of on the back end from your guys and uh, building the system? Because there is a lot of legalese and a lot of jargon, and a lot of um, structures that are built to stop consumers from, be able, from being able to clear themselves of this debt. I mean, it looks like organizers trying to figure out and organizers working with legal aid, lawyers, um, other kinds of strategists and us, you know, um, translating really wonky language into just normal normal speak. It's the same with when talking about economics and finance or talking about your rights and legal issues and debts. All None of it is very transparent. Um, they're both opaque markets and the language are their hurdles as well. So it's really us trying to translate this into just like normal language for people and then figuring out how to build some um, strategies towards challenging creditors. And so we're using the data on the back end or thinking about using the data on the back end to see where people are where there's collective interest, and then what we can do together. And what kind of pushback are you guys seeing from debt collectors and stuff? Is there any sort of robust opposition to what you're doing, or is everyone generally in favor of this? I mean, the Department of Ed, when we launched, the Department of Ed itself was the creditor and the collector because we were challenging federal student loans. And and this is, this is through this the, was the private camp- colleges. Yeah, this is the for-profit education campaign. And then we saw in that case that, yeah, that they were concerned that we were building momentum and um, even made some comment in their public public comment uh, site that said, look out, there's a debt resistance movement growing, which I love to see, right? Um, it's thrilling. So I think that we can expect different kinds of pushback as you know, companies are definitely good at doing that and well-resourced, but um, there's just not another option. You know, I think it's really, we live in 2018 and the world functions in a certain way and and we need to figure out how to challenge it. And we're not going to do it in traditional labor organizing space. We're going to we're going to do it both in traditional labor organizing and in other spaces, community spaces, and in, and with work like this. So, and what kind of debts are you guys finding? Um, are people most interested in getting rid of? Like, what are most people coming um, feeling their weighed down with? Oh, you name it. I mean, it's utility bills. It's defaulted. You know, people are using credit cards just for basic needs to get by because, again, people aren't making a living wage or they don't have a good job. I mean, that's very common. So it really just depends on the person. Medical debt is huge. I was just in New Orleans. We had a medical debt clinic. Um, People are struggling with all sorts of payday loans. Student debts, of course, are the big one. And especially because you can't file bankruptcy and get out of them, people are just struggling so hard with student debt. So we'll continue to organize in these different spaces and then prioritize fees and fines, right? As soon as you get as soon as you are arrested or you go to court and then you've got you've got money bail issues, you've got probation, let alone, you know, people getting body attachments, those costs are like apparently thirty five dollars a day or fender funded, right? Yeah. So I mean it just it really depends on the person, but everyone's everyone's drowning in debt. <laughs> And do you guys see this as uh, sort of like a triage until we're able to get more progressive policies in place, like doing away with cash bail? Or yes. do you think this is so this is this isn't something you want to be doing for the next decade? This no, is something no. you want to see to propel. better. No. Yeah. yeah. No, this is simply a service and it's to identify potential collectives and collective interest. And then we can fight together and work together toward outcomes that we'd like to see. I mean, there are progressive policies that people are floating that 
are, you know, hopefully in different modes of organizing and electoral spaces will be pushed forward and policy change will be pushed forward, like um, even challenging intergenerational wealth with baby bonds, right? Derek Hamilton has this idea or, and, and others have been talking about baby bonds, different modes of reparations. You know, the federal job guarantee seems to be coming up. There's a lot of, you know, fighting in, on the left w- between UBI and the federal job guarantee. Um, I think that's a productive conversation to have. Uh, and yeah, I would say that there's all sorts of good, obviously, uh, Medicare for all, universal health care, tuition free education. You know, the fight is on. This is really just a service and a way to build relationships with people while we and, do that. And speaking of the fight, uh, how have you guys been organizing and what kind of success are you finding with that? Well, like I said, we ran the campaign and were successful in testing this theory of change. And that was the the big campaign that we ran. And then we took those lessons and built some infrastructure. And now we're coming out to do more organizing work and campaigning uh, with this new infrastructure. So we have not been running new campaigns. We've really been hunkered down, sort of getting a sense of what's been happening over the last eight months, especially, and just doing, um, you know, base building work. And this is kind of uh, a national infrastructure you're talking about. This yes. isn't. Um, how does that work for scalability? Are you finding it's pretty easy to slot into any city and and have your tools work, or is it, it a little yeah. bit more complicated? Yep, yeah, it really depends on the community. But you know, we've made this set of tools to be useful, and we're finding that really what we need are more organizers and people using the tools, and um, we can scale. And that the infrastructure I'm describing that's national in scope can both work locally at the state level and nationally. And the point is to get at creditors, to get um, to build some leverage in the financial space. We're going to need to do that because that's how financial, I mean, they're global financial elites and players, but um, we, we need to scale. So that's what we're working on. And yeah. And I, I wonder, because one comment I've heard, you know, uh, of people kind of criticizing American secondary education um, or, or high school education is we don't teach financial education. We don't teach financial literacy. Uh, and it seems like a lot of people have a crash court is in that when they become adults. Um, what kind of education campaigns are you guys running? Yeah, I mean, this is a challenge for me. I think that, you know, it's not a really a, I think it's really we need to start questioning what our rights are and what we should demand and how we're defaulting on our debts, our social obligations to one another. It's less about learning how to be a good payer, maybe what kind of a job you can get in order to pay. Right. So this is like a false choice to me. And I, I really I don't I, I kind of just I hate the term financial literacy. You know, mm-hmm. what we need to do is think more clearly about the kind of society that we want to have together and what we owe to one another. And we we need to understand our history and look at how we've you know, stolen, stolen, exploited labor, from black and brown communities historically, and we need to repair the damage and we need to actually invest in our communities, right? And so I, this financial literacy, like learn how to pay, learn how to get ahead, I, I don't, I just, I can't engage it really. It, being more well-versed in a broken system doesn't really help you. It's kind of, it yeah. kind of seems like it. Yeah, right. And I mean, I think that there is this tendency for people to, you know, certainly we want to know it, it, the details so that we can under, we can power map and understand how to organize and act and make changes. But, you know, there's a level of communities, people in communities across the country know how they're struggling, right? We don't really need to, you know, educate people about the suffering that they endure. They know that. What we need to do is figure out how to work together and change those conditions, right? <laughs> That's the focus. So I think of anything 
th- that's the kind of education that we need to work on. And I, this is a little bit of a brain stretcher question, but uh, it seems like you're putting forward an idea of a different way for consumers slash individuals, whatever term you want to use, to engage with the economy. And what would that look like in uh, kind of the world that you want to see versus ours where you're kind of perpetually taking on debt, you're constantly owing, you're constantly in the hole and trying to dig yourself out? Yeah, I think that this is a good question. It's a complicated one. There's many different ways to get at it. One, I think that, you know, I'm obviously for stopping cooperation with um, creditor, the creditor class and capitalists. I'm for starting cooperation with one another through, you know, um, solidarity economies, um, cooperative economies, economies that consider that that don't want to be exploitative, that want to practice democracy in the workplace, um, that that are also engaging internationally with other workers and communities who are producing goods and services and, you know, taking those values and and working on exchange. That's one. I think, you know, when we talk about things like the federal job guarantee, for example, there's one way to do that that's top down. That's not that's just not that interesting to me. I think we're overworked and we're underpaid and tired and we need some, you know, dignity and respect ultimately across the country, many of us. And so um, when I think about a federal job job guarantee, what I would want to see would be communities coming together and asserting what they need in their community and maybe creating a budget and then, you know, federal funding coming, which can happen. There are plenty of people who are um, proponents of, you know, different kinds of monetary policy that understand that we have the money to do it. It's just a matter of priorities, ultimately. And so I'd, I would rather see communities engaged in that process, which I guess is a bit closer to more traditional, like, participatory budgeting. But, you know, again, like, rather than a top-down jobs program where you're doing whatever, it would be good to have communities in conversation with themselves and also with each other across the country to make certain kinds of demands and transitioning our infrastructure. I mean, my God, Los Angeles, for example, if we're talking about utopian demands, it's like, get, you know, get a transportation infrastructure here. Like, how many hours do I have to sit on the highway? Mike, how is this possible? You know, sorry. No, no, no. I'm a a pedestrian and a public transit rider here. And it's 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 very, very frustrating. Um, And it's it's sad because we're finally getting like the train system we want because Mayor Garcetti thinks that he's getting the Olympics. And that's the only way we get a train, is if we get to sell our city to the Olympics. Yeah, but um, what debts do you get on that in the back? I mean, oh, obviously, Lord. you would look at different countries who go broke over the Olympics coming to town. It's like Amazon coming to town. I don't know, and then it's not the same. But you you know, there's gotta be oh, a yeah. debt to pay over that. <laughs> yeah, no, they, uh, and, and you know, the areas that they're looking at redeveloping, quote unquote, are already very dense, you know, communities that have a history that they're ready to just kind of clear out so that they can put in, you know, um, athlete housing and stuff like that. Um, and it's it's very silly. It's the weird kind of growth model we have here in uh, America, I think, more than other places where we want to tear everything down or to build something new and shiny that we didn't really need in the first place and isn't there to serve the people who live there. It's there to serve the people who want to make money off of it. Uh, but slash rant on that one. Um, wanted, to, uh, wanted to transition real quick because... And you mentioned the Debt Collective came out of Occupy Wall Street, and I, I was pretty involved with, uh, obviously not Wall Street, because we, we don't have that, but we, we occupied the uh, lawn in front of City Hall for a couple of months. Uh, and that was one of the best things I've ever done, and also one of the most frustrating. Um, but I don't feel like the legacy of Occupy Wall Street has has died completely, has faded completely. I was wondering if you could talk about how that action and like those series of actions have informed you guys moving forward, and sort of the cultural conversation. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. I think that, you know, a lot of us who engaged during that time period really learned good lessons around 
practicing direct democracy and and doing a kind of creative work um, and spending a lot of time to do that work and that that those lessons I think have really been foundational in terms of shaping a lot of the work that we've done of course we took some lessons and you know didn't continue to have people's assemblies and hours and hours and hours of meetings in church basements um, you know we still have meetings right yeah. we're organizers we still need to do that and we're doing that and people are doing that in communities but uh, I would say that no I think that a lot of a lot of the experiences that we had and that the spirit of that kind of effort is definitely in our work. I mean, I think it's hard to talk about details about, like, for example, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to fund our way out of the system, mm-hmm. right? And so we need a kind of voluntary organizing and a kind of bottom-up, um, just, no, I hate the term do-it-yourself, but, like, we do, we do need to, you know, be scrappy in a certain way, and there is a lot of scrap. And I'd say that even today, like, we still, you know... F- 2018 we're still very scrappy and try to think about not only our direct action or our legal strategies or service provision or you know just the ongoing day-to-day work we don't we're not um we're not top we're not like super top-down traditional organizers we didn't we weren't professional organizers we all came from different backgrounds and used the best of those experiences in this type of work. And I think that it shows in the kind of work that we've developed over time. And so I just hope that that people don't shy away from organizing because they don't know what, there isn't a, I I just don't think that there's a culture of organizing that people really understand. I think there are tendencies and sort of movement movements and activism, um, but that sort of deeper ongoing work that pieces together seemingly disparate elements uh, and thinks in a different way is, is that's the work that we need to somehow share. And the part of the problem is that people are struggling so hard that, you know, they're just trying to get by and they don't have time, emotional energy. And so figuring out ways in which people can truly participate. And that was a big deal, I think, for me during Occupy times was that like, you know, people who were working all the time were not there spending hours every day. They were working. And so for us over the last couple of years, it's been how do we actually do bottom up and bring people in and do that in a real way and and work and develop together. And it's a challenge. It's ongoing. But we've managed to do that. And we what we did was prioritize resources toward that happening. And so that would be, you know, when we when we talk about building solidarities with, between the city, urban and rural um, working class, like poor of the, of the South and then black and brown communities, we, you know, we brought people together. We spent the money to bring people together, to bring people into conversation. We, we did that. We made that the priority. Yeah. I, I think that's one thing I learned uh, as I transitioned, because when I was younger, I was very involved in like national electoral politics uh, and then kind of had a, a few years of cynicism and then ground game kind of lit my fire again. But one thing I had to unlearn was talking to people and learn to listen, because a lot of the communities that we work with have been here longer than I have, have been fighting these battles longer than I have, but don't necessarily have tools that we can help bring to them. But we can't be telling them how to engage with that. We need to be listening to what the community wants and what the community needs. I know one of our organizers, uh, Kendall, works with uh, Power. People organize for West Side Renewal, and they have boards made up of people who live in public housing and she calls them her bosses and that really changed my perspective and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know how your perspective has flipped over uh, over these experiences yeah I mean I think that that's the most unattractive part of 
of activist organizing culture is that like <laughs> that tendency for I get it you know people are frustrated and they want to make change and it's challenging and there's a lot of there's a lot of yelling and kind of oppositional at the same time it leads to a kind of personality that's just like I know everything I'm going to tell you and then we're going to get it done it's not it's not the most attractive way to be you know um, I'd say that yeah I mean everyone has something to learn and I think especially white people have a lot of have a lot to learn about um, other cultures and communities and they need to like sit down you know yeah. and at the same time have have a space and participate and I think you know wherever possible where I've seen the kind of thinking and the and the resources that we've developed um, complementing other efforts I think that that's the way that we think about it so again with the platform I mean we're really looking at it as that's going to be a space in which we try to make the most productive kind of democratic decision-making infrastructure that we can and with the people that we've worked with for example when we were on the strike we had a strike fund the strikers determined how to use that money we did not you know that that was a process in which and and people were not exercised in doing that they had not done that before it first was frustrating for people because then they had to go through talking about it because all sorts of things would come up like one woman who's a striker was arrested and there was a conversation around paying that bail right and whether that should happen or not or whether they should prioritize spending the resources to go to dc to you know lobby some politician and ultimately they decided to you know help their fellow striker and and bail her out and i think that that's the kind of work that needs to happen and that's just not going to be a that's not going to be top down and kind of moving forward and i realize this isn't something you have fully sketched out yet but how do you see you guys kind of designing the structure? Is this something that you want to be kind of hierarchical and centralized? Are you looking to have something decentralized, um, something in between? Just sort of what are you guys sort of aiming for in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of decentralized activity. And um, I think that what we're actually trying to bring is a, a mo like a kind of clearinghouse mode or a level of centralization, not for all things, you know? but for strategic points of convergence. Like that is really what we're aiming. So we're not trying to be this like national umbrella organization that just comes in and is like, oh, we're now we're claiming all this local work and then we're gonna use it for our own political agenda. Really what we're trying to do is take tech infrastructure and use it to centralize and build collective power in, op in opposition. And you know we need to do that within these different, so the collectives again will be organized by debt type and then people will be able to organize by locality. We'll have this interactive map as well. And of course, everybody else uses, you know, social media and other forms of communication and people are tied to their local work. But like, I, we do need to make those connections. And, and I w sometimes describe it as like, it's a, it's a core piece of infrastructure in a way. It's like, um, we're building the highway that like, let's say Black Lives Matter activists go and stop, right? Mm -hmm. And like they flood and then stop traffic in. We're, we're sort of building infrastructure that people can come in and use. And we can't, you know, we are not megalomaniacs. We cannot do this stuff on our own. The whole point is to collaborate and to do complementary um, work together. And I just think what's exciting about that is that what, what's 
what what is shameful is that we have a space that's highly competitive and the philanthropists and foundations set it up so that um, organizers who do receive a little bit of funding end up being incredibly competitive and it ends up being like a hustle gigging kind of economy and that's and that's meant to um, basically stop stop building momentum and so i think that you know to the degree that we can understand that and then move forward and really attempt to bridge some of those disconnects and and do some strategic organizing together the more powerful we'll be and i have not seen that quite happen yet i've seen movement moments i've seen networks i've seen solidarity networks across the country but there's just so much more that we can do and i'm excited to hopefully participate in that yeah, destroying the perception of kind of false scarcity that we all have drilled into us by um, kind of the, the media and, and life and work is, is really hard to get through and to get people to see that different perspective. Uh, you're obviously out here in L.A. Uh, we're going to be doing a debt clinic um, with you guys uh, tomorrow. Uh, how else are you guys getting the word out and getting people involved at this point? We've got organizers in different um, areas across the country, and we're doing a lot of canvassing. We talked about canvassing recently. Well, you and I did. Um before we started recording and part of that canvassing is just to talk about you know positive changes that we can make in the economy um, we also bring those dispute tools so it's much more in-depth kind of canvassing yeah and longer conversations with communities but the whole point is, is we don't just show up at a door and knock and talk endlessly at somebody but provide a service right mm-hmm. so that we can try to be absurd and for people who want to uh, learn more, get involved, uh, maybe use your dispute tools or get uh, familiar with them, how can they do that? They can do that by going to www.debtcollective.org. And I want to thank you so much for inviting me here. Yeah, of course. I was going to say that was a really good talk. I'm really looking forward. There's been a lot of people who are excited about the debt thing because, as you guys have, have correctly kind of identified, People feel very atomized and alone, especially when you're in debt. It's something that's seen as shameful, even though everybody carries debt. Um, and it, it kind of it can affect interpersonal relationships, your your job prospects, all of that stuff. Um, and it becomes an issue that people don't want to talk about. I think until I came here and had uh, Kilo, another one of our, our organizers, uh, you know, flat out say, look, we live in a capitalist economy and we're all terrible at talking about money. One of the things we're going to do is get good at talking about money and I grew up like on the floor of a hedge fund. I grew up around money and I could not for the life of me talk about money. And just kind of that basic work has been really hard, but really rewarding. Yeah, I think it's really good to, you know, the, the personal is political uh, to talk about money, to talk about indebtedness, to talk about vulnerability, to talk about structural causes rather than, you know, I, I do think that it's surprising to me that still even people who are working around organizing activism still feel the stigma and talking about indebtedness. Um, we organized earlier on uh, debt assemblies where people would just come together and talk about their debt. And it was, it was um, really unnerving and, and empowering for people at the same time. So earlier on, uncomfortable, and then also just a relief. Just even get it out and say, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. So. Uh, and then uh, before we wrap up real quick, uh, anything you want to leave our listeners with? Any last thoughts or sort of like um, ideas uh, that you want to plant in their mind? Anything like that? Yeah, so we took this saying from Paul Getty, who's an old, old industrialist and capitalist, um, 
and used it and you know repurposed it and it, it is the, the saying is this if you owe the bank a hundred thousand dollars the bank owns you if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars you own the bank and our proposition really is that together we own the bank and we need to start acting like it and we need to build some leverage around our individual um, debts and we need to collectivize and when we do that and when we look at our debts as um, as capitalists do which is future income then we can think about organizing and you know some collective bargaining in that space and just changing the terms of the conversation excellent thank you very very much laura thank you.